Where we left off last week, I just wanted to share a couple thoughts with you guys. Um, whenever missionaries come over to my house and I meet with them, I always want to be mindful of what my kids are exposed to. You know, it's obviously my job to protect them both physically and spiritually. For that reason, whenever they come over, uh, I will either take them on the back porch and we will talk there if it's a nice day, or I will take them downstairs uh, and talk with them there, but we will never meet in the upstairs family room uh, for that reason. But, as, uh, but whenever our meetings are over and I, I, I walk the missionaries uh, out, outside, I will introduce them to my family, to my kids, so they do get to see how I treat them in a, in a kind and loving way. About six months ago, I got home from work and Chrissy was telling me that Gabriel, uh, he was three years old at the time, he was playing church with his Paw Patrol toys. And Josh, I don't have a clicker today, so I'm going to be pointing a lot. So this, can we get number three up there? Uh, PowerPoint number three. So I'm just going to tell you guys, uh, I guess what happened. We don't have the slides up quite yet. So Gabe was playing with his Paw Patrol toys. He has, you know, Chase, Rubble, uh, Rocky, and all these other ones. And he said, this one over here, this is Pastor Chase. This one's Sunday School Teacher Marshall. And uh, so PowerPoint, it's the, there's three of them on there. PowerPoint number one, two, and three and on the stick drive. So it's, the, it's number three. And then uh, there was one of them that was uh, a kid from Sunday School. And then one of them was Daddy. And then for the, for the last one, he said, this one, that's Daddy's Mormon friend. <laughs> and so... That was just kind of a cute little story. But there's one other point that has just been, it's sometimes on my mind, maybe it's on yours sometimes, but when I look around and I see Latter-day Saint missionaries, I see Jehovah's Witnesses with their book stands, I see Muslims with their booths at the Puyallup Fair, and even if I see that big yellow temple right down the, down the street that I believe that's a Sikh temple, if I'm having an honest heart-to-heart conversation with God, I might ask him, where are you, God? You know, it, it kind of feels like you're losing sometimes. Um, on, Facebook, on Facebook, I have about uh, three different uh, Facebook groups that I'm a part of there. They're Latter-day Saint Facebook groups. So I, get, I do get to have fruitful conversations with a number of Latter-day Saints. And about two months ago, there was this guy that reached out to me and we've been talking, he was, he's been in the church for a year. We've been talking about the things that we've been talking about, how there's no longer, oh, there we go. Yeah, that's what Gabe's toys were like. <laughs> um, but we were talking and he's been very receptive to the things we've been talking about, that we no longer have a need for temples, that Jesus has always been God, never been anything less. Um, and so we've been talking for a couple months, but he's still going to the LDS church. And one thing I won't do for the most part, is I'm not going to pressure someone to leave the LDS church. Uh, and, and the reason why is because it's very different from uh, us going from a Baptist church to a Lutheran church or to a Presbyterian church. It's a very big change, and I believe that the Holy Spirit will guide that person out of the LDS church in his time. And so that's kind of a test for me. I want to tell them to leave the LDS church, and if they ask me, of course, I'm going I'm to tell them, but... Um, anyway, two weeks ago, uh, he sent me a message and said, Paul, uh, I had a dream. Um, there was a person that appeared to me, and he said, you have to be at the right place. 
And then he said it one more time. You have to be at the right place. What, what do you think it means? And I said, I can't say for sure what your dream means, but uh, I do know this, that God wants you to be at the right place where you can grow in knowledge, faith, and truth. And the LDS church is a place that has the wrong knowledge, the wrong faith, and it doesn't have the truth about Jesus. I think God has given you a dream saying you have to be at the right place because right now you're at the wrong place. And he was receptive and said, I think you're right. Can you tell me what church I should go to? And so um, I looked up a Bible-based church close to where he lives called International Baptist Church. And he went there last Sunday. He met with a pastor on Tuesday. And he had this guilt on his shoulders because he was feeling guilty of being baptized into the LDS church. And that was really weighing on him. This pastor looked at him and said, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Will you put your faith in Jesus and trust him? And he said, yeah. And so he, all he wants to do is learn more about Jesus. And now he's attending the Wednesday, Wednesday night Bible studies there as well. Um, so that was encouraging. And then um, another story that just happened this last week, I posted something on one of those LDS Facebook groups that is it was kind of an indirect. If, you, if you're too direct, then you're going to get kicked out of the LDS Facebook groups. I found that out before. Um, but it's one of those things where if the Latter-day Saint thought about it enough, they would have, they would have a question. And I noticed that one of the members uh, reposted what I, what I posted. And so I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. So I reached out and I asked them, I, I noticed that you re-shared my post. What are your thoughts? And are you a member of the church? And here's what she said. Yes, I am. Well, I was raised in the church my whole life up till now, but I'm starting to have questions. The biggest things that hit me are, why does the LDS doctrine contradict what Paul told us we should do? Why does the Bible say that salvation is by faith through grace, but the Book of Mormon says salvation by grace after all we can do? Why weren't there temple works in Paul's day? Why does Paul say, God doesn't dwell in temples made by man, but the LDS Church makes a huge deal about temples and ordinances. Also, why do we even have ordinances when Paul says they died with the law? I don't know. I have so many questions. And the more I read and study the Bible, the more questions I have because of the doctrines I was raised with. Um, in the handout that each of you guys should have gotten, uh, there's two, two packets in there that are kind of Bible lessons that I will hand out to LDS missionaries. And uh, I sent those to her, and I also recommended that she listens to um, a podcast called Unveiling Grace, which is hosted by someone who used to be a professor at Brigham Young University, and then she, she, but she left the LDS Church, and it now has her own ministry. Um, anyway, those are just two encouraging stories that I came across uh, the last couple of weeks, and I wanted to share those with you guys because of how edifying it was for me. And it also reminds me that you know, we can be assured that God's drawing many other people around the world to himself in ways that we might just not see. And so if you ever do get discouraged of all the false religions around, just remember that God is at work even when we don't see him. Jesus, um, thank you so much for being who you are, for loving us when we don't deserve it, even though we, we know how unworthy we are of your forgiveness, yet you still reach down to us 
Uh, thank you for uh, just giving us the assurance. We know you've already won. And I pray that we would just remember that you are at work even when we can't see you. Amen. So last week we left off on, um, let's see, can you go to the next one, Josh? There we go. So we left off on the great apostasy, how the LDS church teaches that the, that the church that Jesus established was destroyed and then Joseph Smith restored it later on. The question we obviously need to ask is, what did Jesus say about the establishment of his church? And I guess just so you guys know, all of these slides will be uploaded onto the LDS website. So don't, you don't need to take a ton of notes if, because they're all, they're all going to be on the website. Um, but here we, we read Matthew 16, 18. <clears throat> and I tell you, you're a Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Whenever I bring this up to missionaries, they will commonly focus on what the rock is. They'll say, oh, well, Paul the rock, that's prophets and apostles. So our church has prophets and apostles because that's what the church is built on. And I will typically say, well, I'm not interested in debating that right now. I'm more interested in this last half of the verse because it clearly says that Jesus built his church and nothing is going to destroy it. Um, another passage we can go to is Jude 1.3. Uh, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. So we're commanded to defend the faith or the gospel, and it was delivered how many times? Just once, exactly. Uh, next one, please. In the King James Version, it says uh, that the, the faith was once delivered to the saints. And so a response I've gotten before is, well, Paul, my Bible, the King James, which a lot of Latter-day Saints prefer, it says that it was delivered once. I don't think that means once and for all. I think that means that the gospel was delivered once through Jesus, then it was delivered once again later on through Joseph Smith. And so you might be able to stalemate, you know, with, with that sort of response. Um, but go to the next one, Josh. This is a cool tool that I came across. It's called the Interlinear Greek. And you can kind of see the Greek is on the bottom, the literal English is on top. And if you look at the green arrow, you can see that in the Greek, it does mean once and for all. So that, just, that's, that can be a useful tool. Um, but obviously, the concluding question is, if the gospel was delivered once and for all, then it's not going to be delivered a second time. And that absolutely shatters the possibility of a restored gospel. So when it comes to the great apostasy and the restored gospel, there's no biblical reason to accept it and every biblical reason to reject it. Next one, please. The next topic is priesthood authority. What is that? On the left-hand side, we see Jesus laying his hands on the apostle Peter and passing on the priesthood authority to him. On the right-hand side, that is Peter, James, and John passing on the priesthood authority to Joseph Smith. There's a couple obvious problems with this. As you can see in the picture on the left, they will see that Jesus passed on the priesthood authority by laying his hands on the disciples. But the, the biggest problem is there's no clear reference anywhere in Scripture of anyone ever laying their hands on anyone and passing on this priesthood authority. And so a question that we can simply ask is, um, if Jesus is our example, 
why don't we ever read about him laying his hands and passing on this priesthood authority to his apostles? If he didn't do it, why, why, why would we try to do that? Because again, if they believe if there's no priesthood authority, then there's no church. So this is an extremely important foundation um, and it's completely absent from scripture. What exactly is priesthood authority? In the LDS church, there are two ranks or levels of priesthood that only men are able to receive. The first one is when boys turn 12 years old, they can receive the Aaronic priesthood, which enables them to carry around the sacrament plate. They can collect offerings and they can also assist the bishop. And then when they turn 18, they can receive the Melchizedek priesthood in which they can give blessings to people, perform temple ordinances like the endowment ceremony or being sealed to a, a spouse. They can baptize people and they can give people the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the Melchizedek priesthood is something we're going to focus on because that's actually talked about in the book of Hebrews. Not, the, not priesthood authority, but the Melchizedek priesthood is something in the book of Hebrews. Next one, please. Hebrews seven fifteen through 17. What we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared, you are a priest forever in order of the Melchizedek. This is in clear reference to Jesus, and it's implying that he is the only rightful holder of the Melchizedek priesthood. And so it would be blasphemous for anybody else to also hold that priesthood role. And unfortunately, every single male missionary that comes to your door believes that they do hold that priesthood, um, even though that only belongs to Jesus. Next one, please. Hebrews 7.23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So, uh, whenever a priest dies, they no longer have that role of priest, is what it's saying. And I think a lot of, of Latter-day Saints miss this because if you remember that picture of Peter, James, and John passing on the priesthood to Joseph Smith, this clearly states that when you die, you lose that role. You don't have that priesthood anymore, yet they're saying that they passed on the priesthood, even though scripture says when you die. So th there's a conflict there. But then the end, the, the end of this verse, it emphasizes why Jesus alone holds the Melchizedek priesthood forever, and that's because he, he lives forever. Any questions on anything so far? All right, well, let's keep going. Next one, please. Um, so if you remember, uh, my mom and I went to the LDS church a while ago and we saw someone get confirmed and baptized or confirmed and received the Holy Ghost. And I got in touch with this person. We were talking and he asked me this question. He said, Paul, so we believe that the church was destroyed, but my Christian friend showed me this verse that says where Jesus says his church will never be destroyed. How do we make sense of that, Paul? And I said, well, that's a good question, you know? And I think the question we need to ask next is, who do you believe we should trust? The words of Jesus or the words of Joseph Smith? And honest Latter-day Saints, 
who have not been fully indoctrinated are left with this dilemma. Who are you going to trust? Your prophet or your savior? Um, after asking him this question, he was just silent, no clue how to respond. Because again, if he says we should trust Jesus, that means Joseph Smith was wrong. And the entire foundation of the LDS church is built on a lie. But on the other hand, if he says we should trust Joseph Smith, well, even to a Latter-day Saint, that just doesn't, it doesn't feel right to say we should trust anybody's words over Jesus. After this, I, I was transparent with him. I told him I'm actually not a member of the LDS church, which surprised him. Um, I asked him what his understanding of the gospel is. We talked about that for a little bit. And then I asked him if he'd ever dig in, dug into the history of the LDS church, how we got the Book of Mormon, history of Joseph Smith. He said, no, never even touched that topic before. And so that's going to be the next part of our conversation this morning. So growing up, Joseph Smith and his family, they were poor. And that's actually one of the things that led him and his dad into the business of treasure digging. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, he would go around and advertise that he could help people find buried treasure as kind of a get rich quick scheme. He also found a seer stone. And the use of a seer stone is a form of witchcraft because it's used to communicate with unfamiliar spirits or demons. It's kind of like a crystal ball. So what Smith would do is he would advertise himself, go up to people. Hey, Danielle, I can help you find some buried treasure. And she would say, sounds good. How much money do you want? So she would pay me some money and I would say, I would put my seer stone or Joseph Smith put his seer stone into his hat, look in the hat and say, this is where you need to dig. And they would dig all the way around this area. So, but first red flag, if I was poor and I had the, if I really had the ability to find buried treasure, why wouldn't I just go dig it up myself? Right? But the second red flag, Joseph Smith never found any buried treasure at all. So he would tell people where to dig. They would dig all around and they would say, hey, Joe, uh, where's the treasure? He would say, oh, hold on, guys. Let me check one more time. Put this magic rock into a hat, look into it. And he would say, oh, guys, you're not going to believe this. There was a spirit guarding the treasure and the spirit moved the treasure somewhere else. We were so close, guys. And that's actually what happened with every single customer that he had. After doing this for a number of years, he met a woman named Emma, and Joseph asked for her hand in marriage to her dad. Her dad said, no, you can't marry my daughter, and I think your treasure digging business is a scam. So what did Smith do? They eloped, and he married her anyways. After a while, uh, he came back, and he wanted to talk to her dad about something. He didn't want to go by himself for understandable reasons, so he took a neighbor with him, and the neighbor's name was Peter Ingersoll. And uh, Joseph had a conversation with his now father-in-law. And Peter actually writes about this conversation that took place. His father-in-law addressed Joseph in a flood of tears. You have stolen my daughter and married her. I'd much rather have followed her to her grave. You spend your time digging for money, pretend to see in a stone, and thus try to deceive people. Joseph wept and acknowledged that he could not see in a stone now, nor never could and that his former pretensions in that respect were false. 
He then promised to give up his old habits of digging for money and looking into stones. So Emma's dad calls him out for scamming people, pretending to use a seer stone, and Smith admits that, yes, that is true. I have been deceiving people. Paul, this is interesting, but what does this have to do with the Book of Mormon, right? Stay with me. Um, Let's talk about how missionaries will teach investigators how we got the Book of Mormon today. Next one, please. So on the left, we have the angel Moroni, who appeared to Joseph Smith and said, go dig in this forest close to your house. You're going to find gold plates. And that's what Joseph Smith did. You see him holding kind of like a gold spiral bound uh, book binder type thing with a bunch of gold plates that you'd flip through. And on these gold plates, there were uh, inscriptions and writings of ancient history. And they were written in reformed Egyptian if you ask any scholar outside of the LDS church, they will tell you, tell you that Reformed Egyptian is not a real language and that Joseph Smith made that language up. Um, but Joseph Smith took the gold plates and by the power of God, he translated them into English. And uh, that's a, a quick summary of how we got the Book of Mormon. But So Joseph Smith translating the gold plates by the divine power of God. Here we see Joseph Smith at a desk, diligently looking at the gold plates. And on the other side of the curtain, there's a scribe who's writing down um, whatever Joseph Smith says after he translates them and says the English out loud. The LDS Church has actually done a really good job documenting their history. And they did a really good job documenting the history of how this translation process actually took place. And this is not how it took place. Can you do the next couple? One more? Um, do you remember that seer stone that Joseph used to deceive people to get their money and to try to find buried treasure but never found any? That is the exact same stone and the exact same method for how he wrote the Book of Mormon. He put a stone into a hat, put his face up to the hat, and just said the words out loud and the scribe wrote them down. There are Mormon testimonies of the plates being covered with a cloth, which is what you, you see in the bottom or the top right hand corner. And in the bottom corner here, his wife Emma gives testimonies that the gold plates were nowhere in the room when he was tran translating them. So uh, what's the point of the gold plates if you were never even looking at them? And how can you say that you were translating them well, again when you're not even looking at them, right? And just to clarify, this picture on the left, that's on their website today. And in the pamphlets that missionaries hand out to people, the, it doesn't say anything about a seer stone. The only thing it says about this is Joseph Smith translated the gold plates by the power of God. And I believe that that is intentionally misleading. And the LDS church leaders know that if investigators knew about how this how this translation process really took place, um, that would significantly decrease the number of converts to the LDS church. But obviously, they don't want that to happen. So they have pretty good motive to, to keep this hidden. Any questions on this part? Good deal. Oh, sorry.
That, that's a good question. I forgot to mention that. Thank you, Carl. So are, are the gold, is the, are the gold pages around somewhere? No, the angel Moroni miraculously took those up to heaven. So, sorry, Carl. You're, you're out of luck, buddy. The seer stone. Um, so, the the history isn't super clear on that. There are historical historical records that say that the prophets after Joseph Smith they did still have it, um, but but nobody really knows what happened after that. After the, the, the he was asking about the seer stone. Is the seer stone still around today? It, it could be, but um, the LDS prophets definitely don't want people to know about it if it was. So. Yes. I don't know if I'm going to steal your thunder, but... You might, Mom. You might. So my mom was pointing out that there's a good chunk of the Bible, or of the uh, Book of Mormon, that is actually just taken word from word directly from the King James Bible and just plagiarized right there uh, in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Okay, next slide. So if you guys remember from our first session, um, missionaries, they have a pretty good gauge when interacting with uh, investigators that has somewhat of a Bible-based background of what to say and what not to say. Um, Again, they want you to believe that our beliefs are pretty much the same thing, that they're just another branch of Christianity. But again, if investigators knew what that bottom chunk of the iceberg consisted of, they would never consider joining the LDS church. And the seer stone is one of those things. We're going to dig into a couple more things real quick. And then, um, yeah. So next slide. We're going to start with the book of Abraham. After Smith established the LDS church, he came across a very interesting artifact. He purchased an ancient manuscript that was written in just regular Egyptian. Not reformed Egyptian, just regular Egyptian. Okay? And... um, he said that the things that were written on the scroll were written by the very hand of Abraham. So once again, by the power of God, he translates it into English. And it's now in their scriptures today as the book of Abraham. But here's the thing about Egyptian is that in the mid 1800s, nobody knew how to translate uh, Egyptian. So that gave Joseph Smith the ability to translate and say anything he wanted to. And nobody could prove him wrong or, or right. But God does have a really cool way of revealing the truth in time. After Joseph Smith died, um, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone occurred. And that enabled scholars and researchers to decipher and figure out how to translate Egyptian into English. The LDS Church was very excited about this because if they can take the scroll to the researchers, they can translate it into English compare that with their translation in their scriptures, and if they match up, that's undeniable proof that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. There's no way he could have done that without the divine power of God. So they did that, they took the scroll to the researchers, they translated it into English, they compared the two, and there was not a single word that was translated correctly. Abraham was nowhere mentioned. The scroll dated to about 500 BC, which is way after the time of Abraham. And, um, and it, it actually, the scroll is actually instructions for a pagan funeral. That, that's what it is. 
This is probably one of the top things that's caused so many people to leave the LDS church because of how clearly it proves that Joseph Smith was a fraud. Polygamy. After Smith married Emma, they had a housemaid living with them. She was 17 years old. Her name was Fanny Alger. And one day Smith married her. He didn't tell Emma about it. When she found out, she was furious. And Joseph Smith said, well, hang on, Sugar Plum. Let me explain this stuff to you, okay? Uh, there was an angel with a flaming sword that appeared to me. And he told me, if you don't marry Fanny, he, I'm going to kill you. And then I said, no, no, I can't do that. But then the angel appeared to me another time and said the exact same thing. So, sweetie, my hands were tied. I have to obey God. And that's why I married Fanny. Over the next 10 years, Joseph Smith married 30 other women. A number of those marriages were without his wife's knowledge. His youngest wife was only 14. And 11 of his wives already had living husbands that they were married to. That's called polyandry, when you have one woman married to multiple men. There were prophets and apostles after Joseph Smith who taught that polygamy is a requirement if you want to enter into God's kingdom. Josh? Thank you. Um, the only men who become gods, even sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. Prophet Brigham Young taught that, and then another prophet taught, it's useless to tell me that there is no blessing attached to obedience to the law, or that a man with only one wife can, attend, can obtain as great of a reward, glory, or kingdom as he can with more than one, being equally faithful. So the last one is saying, if you take a Latter-day Saint with one wife and a Latter-day Saint with multiple wives, the one with multiple wives are going to have greater blessings than the one with only one. Other Mormon leaders taught that both Jesus and God the Father both had many wives. We have clearly shown that God the Father had a plurality of wives. We have also proved most clearly that the Son followed the example of his Father and became a great bridegroom to whom kings, daughters, and many honorable wives were to be married. And then the scriptures say that he, the Lord, came walking in the temple with his train. Train is another word for like group of people that he was with. I do not know who they were unless his wives and children. And the last thing quickly we're going to touch on is race and the priesthood. Going back to the plan of salvation, they believe that we were on a previous life before, a previous planet. We just can't remember it. We were in our spirit forms, and there was a great battle that took place between Jesus and Satan. And there were some of us that fought valiantly, and there were others who were disobedient and just sat back and watched. The LDS Church taught that those of us who sat back and watched and did not fight valiantly were giving a mark or a curse in this life. There are a number of quotes on this, but I'm just going to list one because of how wicked this teaching is. Josh? There is a reason why one man is born black with other disadvantages, while another is born white with great advantages. The reason is that we once had an estate before we came here and were obedient. Those who are faithful in all things there receive greater blessings here, and those who are not faithful received less. The LDS leaders taught, that, uh, taught this for over 100 years, that the mark was black skin. They called it the curse of Cain. And from 1845 through 1978, 
the LDS church did not allow, allow blacks to receive the priesthood. And remember, if you do not have the priesthood, you cannot dwell in the presence of God. So if you boil it down, they taught that if you have black skin, God would say, sorry, can't let you, let you into my kingdom. And, but in 1978, they, they changed that, that rule or that law because they received a, a new revelation. Um, once again, if investigators knew about these things, the LDS church would be dead. It's absolutely dead. No one would convert. And I'm not trying to embarrass the LDS church by talking about these things. If, if, if I was in your shoes, I would want to know about these things. And, but more importantly, again, the deeper we dive into LDS doctrine and into LDS history, the more clear it is we got two entirely different faiths that we're talking about here. But one of the most inconsiderate and unhelpful things a Christian could do would be to tell a Latter-day Saint about these things and then walk away without being the last thing that they say. It's very understandable for when a Latter-day Saint learns about these things that they would leave the church. But unfortunately, about 80% of them become agnostic and atheist. They lose their faith in the church. They lose their faith in Joseph Smith, in the Book of Mormon. But the saddest thing is that they stop believing in God and Jesus altogether. And um, they feel very burned and lied to because this is a very high-demand religion that they've committed their life to. And they can become very hostile because of how deep that pain is. Even the mere mention of Jesus just creates this, makes their blood boil because of what they were taught as a kid their entire life. So whenever I do talk about these things with missionaries or people online, uh, I will always end with something like this. This is a very different God than who I read about in the Bible. God was never married. He never practiced polygamy. He would never say to anyone, sorry, I cannot let you into my kingdom because you have black skin. I encourage you to read the New Testament to learn more about Jesus and the true gospel of grace. I don't want you to be misguided and waste your life believing in something that is false. So we can't just give people the truth about what not to believe. We need to give them the truth about what they should believe as well. We need to give them the true gospel of Jesus. Because if they leave the LDS church and become atheist, what have we really accomplished? They just move from one false belief to another. And that really doesn't do anything. Uh, going back to my friend who I was on the phone with, we, we talked about these things, uh, some of these things. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Paul, I want to talk to you again next week. And so uh, we've been keeping in touch over the last couple months. I had him over for dinner uh, a, couple month, uh, a month ago. And uh, at, we just played games and, and had fun together, just got to know each other a little bit better. Before he came over, um, I bought a, an NIV study Bible online. I went through and I kind of underlined about 80 different Bible verses. And I printed out kind of a, a suggestive chapters, like study guide, just chapters to go through in the Bible from Matthew, John, Romans, Hebrews, that I think would be most essential for him to, to know about. So I gave that to him as a present at the end of the night, and he was very thankful. He's currently still occasionally attends the LDS church. He will also sometimes attend a Catholic church. Um, so, you know, he's obviously not where I would prefer him to be, but if he ever does want to get serious about his faith, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm there for him.
and he has the resource uh, that, that I gave him um, uh, of truth. So, yeah. Any questions on these things? Titus. So, yeah, so the point is, um, what Titus is saying is, uh, so how did the battle happen? Like, why did Satan and Jesus even start fighting each other? So at the plan of salvation, God the Father was basically, uh, he wanted to give us the chance to become like him because we're not living up to our full potential. Uh, God the Father has a body, uh, not according to the Bible, but according to the LDS church. And if we want to become like him, we need to have a body ourselves. That's why we're here on earth. So he said, does anyone have an idea for what the plan of salvation should be? Two hands shoot up, Jesus and Satan. Jesus says, uh, puts his idea forward, like what Titus was saying, that everyone should have free will. They should choose to follow God. Satan said, no, I don't think that's a good idea because what if people don't choose God? So they shouldn't have free will. And God the Father went with Jesus' plan instead. And that made Satan upset. And that, that's what kind of led him to bash heads with Jesus. Well, yeah, but that, what he was suggesting means that he loved righteousness. So mm. why does he become evil by wanting people to be followers of God? Uh, yeah, no, that, that's, that, yeah, you can ask them that question. I, I'm not sure what they would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything else so far? Okay. Uh, next one, please. So, these are two missionaries I met with at my work uh, over the summer. And the missionary on the right, he's one who I um, became good friends with. He came out to my work three times. His last location was, he was located in Auburn. And one of their outreach events they will do is volleyball at their gym, uh, at their church. And so I went and I played volleyball with them. And I brought two gifts with me to give him as, as a parting gift. I got him a shirt, uh, a Jimmy Butler t-shirt. He likes the Miami Heat, he likes Jimmy Butler. And my, I, I do t-shirts for these guys because I'm hoping that every time they see that t-shirt, they'll be reminded of some of the conversation we've had. Um, but the other gift I got him was a Bible, just like I got um, my, my friend that I told you before. I went through, I highlighted it, I wrapped it up so he didn't know what it was. And on the front of it, I posted, don't open till you get home from your mission because Right now, he's obviously in a very indoctrinated atmosphere, and I was hoping that if he was home in the quietness of his own room with no distractions, then uh, he might be able to read God's word more clearly, is what I was kind of hoping would happen. Um, anyway, so I played volleyball with him in September, and then a month later in October, he sent me a message and said, hey, Paul, I have a question for you. I know you don't believe the Book of Mormon to be scripture, so where do you believe it came from? I kind of walked him through what we talked about with the treasure digging, the seer stone, and my kind of ending question I asked him was, can you honestly tell me that it's wise for me to trust that what Joseph Smith wrote was from God, given what we know from history? And he responded and said, well, how then do you go about explaining the geographical specifications and accuracies in the Book of Mormon? Um, so, 
here we go. Quick summary of the Book of Mormon. Josh? So just right off the bat, Mormon is the name of one of the prophets in the Book of Mormon who wrote the Book of Mormon. So that's why Mormon is the name of one of their prophets. So Lehi, uh, this is kind of, so the Book of Mormon is kind of like the Old Testament where you have a number of different prophets. And Lehi is one of the first prophets mentioned in the Book of Mormon. He lives in Jerusalem. God appears to Lehi in a dream and says, you need to leave because I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. So Lehi and his family build a big boat and they sail to Central America. Um, Lehi also has three sons. So there's a number of parallels between Lehi and Noah. Noah also had three sons, built an ark. You guys know that. And the, the name of Lehi's sons are Lamech, uh, Lemuel, and Nephi. The two oldest ones are rebellious and sinful. The youngest one, Nephi, is righteous and obedient. Eventually, their, their families grow and grow. After the dad dies, the tribes split. So you kind of have a righteous tribe and an unrighteous tribe, and they will commonly battle against each other. Eventually, Jesus appears in the Americas. So after Jesus comes to, the, to Jerusalem, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, he comes back down in Central America to the Nephites, and he teaches them about the gospel. Over time, these tribes keep getting bigger and bigger, like hundreds of thousands of people in each tribe, and they kind of start migrating across the Americas. Eventually, they somehow end up in Palmyra, New York area. The very last battle is happened on what's called the Hill Cumorah, where you have hundreds of, of thousands of soldiers that were killed. The Lamanites, I forgot to mention the tribe's names. You had the, the Lamanites are the wicked tribe, and the Nephites are the righteous tribe. The Lamanites uh, eliminate the Nephites for the most part. Mormon was one of the last prophets, and he wrote down an ancient record of all the prophets before him. He passed it on to his son, Moroni, right before Mormon died. Ne uh, Moroni put the finishing touches on the Book of Mormon and buried it in the Hill Cumorah. 1,400 years later, Joseph Smith digs up the gold plates. So that's kind of the full circle there. Um, so in the front of the Book of Mormon, there's an introduction page. One more. And before 2005, the Lamanites, so remember, Lehi comes from Jerusalem area. That makes him an Israelite. So they believe that Israelites migrated to Central America. And that's what this is getting at here, because the Lamanites, those are a tribe from Israel. The Lamanites are principal ancestors of American Indians. In the years leading up to 2005, um, the LDS church leaders wanted to try to put together some historical proof to show people why the Book of Mormon is legitimate history. They wanted to test the DNA of Native Americans because if they could prove that the Native Americans uh, migrated from the Middle East, Jerusalem area, then that would be a big help to show that the Book of Mormon is legitimate history. They went ahead with that DNA testing and they found out that none of the Native Americans migrated from the Middle East. They actually migrated from Southeast Asia. So what do they do? Because that's the very core of the Book of Mormon, that Native Americans are directly related to Israelites. Next one, Josh. What they do is they, they make this quiet and small change to the introduction page. So now it reads, the Lamanites are among the ancestors of the American Indians. 
So that gives them a little bit of wiggle room now. Now they can say, oh, well, the Lamanites, they, you know, they might have not have been direct ancestors of the Native Americans because the DNA clearly says that that didn't happen, but they, we know that they at least lived among them. So again, it's a small change, but it's, it's there. Uh, next one, Josh, one more. And they actually make another change uh, on the introduction page recently in regard to the Bible. Regarding the Book of Mormon, they say it is a record of God's dealings with the ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains, as does the Bible, the fullness of the everlasting gospel. So they seem to be putting the Book of Mormon and the Bible on par, saying they both have the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The next one, Josh. After 2013, they've removed those four words. Um, and so again, these are small changes that the LDS church leaders make, not, and they, they always want it to be quiet, subtle changes that they hope their members will not take note of. But going back to my friend's question of like the geographic specifications, that's not a question that very many Mormons will ask, and you'll understand why in a little bit. But before I give him my answer for why I don't find it convincing, I want to, I wanted to give him something to cling on to, okay? And so I started off by listing like actual geographic and archaeological evidence for the Bible, what it actually looks like. Next one. So if looking at really old rocks doesn't get you psyched out of your mind, okay, you, you got th this is awesome stuff right here, all right? Uh, first one, Josh. This is the Teldan steel. Uh, at the time this was discovered, people were kind of starting, to, or secular historians were starting to question whether or not the prophet David was actually a real person. They found this, and it's a super, super old uh, rock that, had, that it lists the, the house of David, is listed on it. And so that's pretty cool, is the, the, the house of David, that was a legitimate dynasty in history. And so that just goes to show that the biblical authors weren't making up a, a fictitious uh, dynasty. Next one, we got the Cyrus Cylinder. This was written by King Cyrus of Persia, and it talks about how his slaves returned to their home to rebuild their sanctuaries for their God. And this is important because the Bible actually talks about this exact same event. Uh, in Ezra chapter one, we read about how the same guy, King Cyrus, it says that he allowed the Israelites to return home to rebuild their temple for Yahweh, the one true God. Uh, next one, Josh. We got the Moabite stone. This was written by the king of Moab, and he talks about how the Israelites were oppressing the Moabites for a while, then eventually the Moabites rebelled. And the Bible talks about the same event in 2 Kings chapter 3. And this is also important because it's an enemy that talks about and mentions the Israelites. Once again, um, the Israelites were a real tribe in history. We can find that proof outside of the Bible. <clears throat> uh, next one, Josh. Second Kings chapter 20, we read about King Hezekiah and how he built a tunnel for a better water source when he was king of Israel. That tunnel has been discovered, confirmed, and excavated. Kind of a bonus one is the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus heals the blind man. That has been discovered and excavated. Uh, next one. This is the last one I wanted to touch on because I think, uh, I think it's awesome. <clears throat> we know in the book of Joshua that he and his men walked around this city that was incredibly fortified and basically unbreachable. 
And the walls of the city, they kind of had two sections. You had the bottom half, which was made of stones, and the top half that was made of bricks. And we know the story how on the seventh day, Joshua and his soldiers, they walked around the, this giant city seven times. And on the seventh day, the priests blew their trumpets, the soldiers yelled, and the walls came tumbling down, right? Um, this is what Jericho used to look like. Next one. This is what Jericho looks like today. And I, even like sec, all, all historians and archaeologists, secular and Christian alike, they all agree this is Jericho. This is where it was located. As you can see, you still have the bottom half of the stone wall remaining. And when um, the archaeologists discovered this, they dug kind of at the base of the stone wall and they found that there was the remains of the brick wall that used to be standing there. So even in uh, secular archaeology, they agree that in one way or another, those walls of Jericho did come tumbling down just like what the Bible says. Um, many of the cities in the Bible uh, are still on maps today. Uh, rivers like the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, still on maps today. And so, uh, and then there's also, as we said, there's evidence for the Israelites, the Philistines, Moabites, the Hittites, and others. Um, and, and that's one of the things I love about Christianity, is that it really is the farthest thing from a blind faith. There's just so many good and legitimate reasons that we can trust the Bible. Compare this with the Book of Mormon. The vast majority, if not all LDS scholars and historians agree that there is no archeological evidence for any person, tribe, city, or event that ever took place in the Book of Mormon. There's two guys I'm gonna focus on, uh, Professor D. Green and Thomas Ferguson. And I'm focusing on these two guys because they kind of were the, the founders of uh, the Department of Archaeology at Brigham Young University. The first one, D. Green, this is what he had to say. Oh, there we go. Uh, the first myth we need to eliminate is that the Book of Mormon archaeology exists. If one is to study the Book of Mormon archaeology, then one must have a corpus of data with which to deal. We do not. Biblical archaeology can be studied because we do know where Jerusalem and Jericho were and are but we do not know where Zarahemla and Bountiful, nor any other location for that matter, were or are. Zarahemla and Bountiful are cities mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The other person, Thomas Ferguson, he was a lawyer, a Latter-day Saint, and he was also very dedicated to finding archeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. But after years of research, here's what he had to say. With all of these great efforts, it cannot be established factually that anyone has put his finger on a single point of terrain that was a Book of Mormon geographical place. And the hemisphere has been pretty well checked out by competent people. Thousands of sites have been excavated. The absence of such evidence is distressing and significant. I'm afraid that up to this point, I must agree with D. Green, who has told us that to date, there's no Book of Mormon geography. I, for one, would be happy if D. were wrong. So again, here's a faithful Latter-day Saint dedicated his life to archaeology, and he's honestly and painfully admitting that, that there's nothing, guys. And so this, this is one of the reasons why you don't really hear very many Latter-day Saints make the claim that my missionary friend did. Like, what do you, how do you account for the, geogra the geographical specifications? And uh, there is none, unfortunately. So next slide. 
So this leaves Latter-day Saints with a dilemma. Is it really reasonable to believe that the same God would give us two books, one with overwhelming evidence, the other with no evidence? One, one book has evidence to the point where atheists will challenge it, test it, and they come to a saving faith because of the evidence that God has given us. Uh, a couple of guys that come to mind are Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, and J. Warner Wallace. All three are, were atheists who tested the Bible and they came to faith. On the other hand, you have the Book of Mormon. Because of the lack of faith, that causes people to leave the LDS church. So I sent my friend, my missionary friend, my thoughts that we just kind of went through. And, oh, I guess one other thing that is kind of backwards is the Book of Mormon in uh, 1 Nephi 13.28, it says that many plain and precious truths have been removed from the Bible. So basically you can't fully trust it because there are truths that were removed from it. He had scribes that mistranslated it. So isn't it ironic that the book with no evidence is criticizing the book with overwhelming evidence? Definitely very much backwards. Um, after laying this out for my missionary friend, uh, I told him that it would break my heart if he ever left the LDS church and became atheist. And I really wanted to just build his, his faith in the Bible, his confidence in it, and just uh, wanted to encourage him that you can trust God's word for what it is. And then I ended with this question. I know that you've been taught your entire life that the LDS Church is God's true restored church, but I want to invite you to entertain and consider this question. Would you be willing to trust God enough to follow him out of the LDS Church if that's what he wanted you to do? I haven't heard back from him. He got back from his mission a couple weeks ago, so in another couple months I'll probably reach out to him and ask him if he would like to talk about anything. But, um, yeah, so that kind of concludes our three-week crash course on Mormonism. Are there any concluding questions or any? Yeah, Elise. Yeah, I was wondering, what does, like, a normal Mormon service look like? Like, their worship, have you ever attended Mormon? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, my mom and I were invited to attend an LDS church uh, three weeks ago because there were missionaries that came here and they always want to swap. They're willing to come to our church if, they are, if I'm going to come to their church, because, yeah. Um, and so we went, and uh, they have old-fashioned hymn books that they sing. Um, they don't have, uh, nobody there is paid. Uh, and so like, nobody there has a good education on like, uh, biblical literacy. And so what happens a lot of times is just you get very, very shallow surface level pep talks like on the Book of Mormon, uh, we went to, it's called a Young Singles Adult Ward, where people who are single, they go there because they believe that you cannot receive eternal life if you're not married and sealed in the temple. So they want the singles to, to mingle and to increase in numbers, basically. Um, and yeah, the, the people that kind of gave the, the pep talks there were young men, and they basically listened to general conference talks by previous prophets and kind of created their own little talk based off of that. But it's, it's never digging into scripture. It's never expository preaching or anything like that. So, yeah. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, 
Yes, so each of you should have gotten a, a handout. Th those are packets that I will, or Bible lessons that I will send home with the missionaries after I meet with them. Or if they just come to my door and I don't have time to meet with them, I'll just chat with them for five minutes and say, hey, can I give you guys a gift that you can study on your scripture studies in the morning? Because every morning they do some kind of scripture study for an hour. Um, and as long as you're kind to them, then they will always accept what you give them. So, um, yeah, uh, there's those. Those two that I included in the packet, those are uploaded to the church website. There's about six other ones as well. Um, and all the slides will be uploaded to the church website as well. Okay. Oh, sorry. No. Well, uh, it might be growing just because their families are so big. Like, they're supposed to have lots of kids. So they... But no, there are many, many people leaving the LDS church and becoming inactive. Uh, inactive being they, they don't tithe, and that's one thing they want people to keep doing. Uh, their prophet specifically gave a little pep talk on tithing um, uh, recently. So no, they're, they're not thriving. They're, they're in trouble. And that's why they want to blend in with mainstream Christianity. That's why they want us to think we believe the same thing. If we believe the same thing and become friends with them, why wouldn't we join their church? Right? Okay. Jesus, uh, thank you so much for this time we have to be together. We do pray that you would um, bring people into our life that we can minister to, that we can love with the truth of your word. And I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of just uh, giving people your truth because it's your gospel that changes their lives. Help us to depend on you and not on ourselves. Amen. Thank you.